0: Well, it's great to be back with you. Uh, Last week, thank you to Kevin for speaking and a great um, message there about the value of who we are before God. We are returning to a series we're calling The Lost Art of Friendship. And uh, just to frame this up briefly for you, if you're new here, you're listening online later, and this is a new topic to you, the Lost Art of Friendship is really um, created because we believe that there was a time in the history of the church when the church didn't exist in the way that we know it now. In fact, it began uh, as an infant, like all of us do at birth. And in those early years of its infancy, there was much danger and turmoil both inside and outside the church and a tremendous amount of stress and pressure on the early, early church. And in that kind of melting pot, that pressure cooker pot space of the early church development, someone named Paul and and others in the New Testament, but Paul in particular, wrote letters to these little churches that were trying to figure out how do we make it through these hard times that we are facing, and they were facing hard times within and without starting something new. And in that, he talked over and over and over again about how to do things one another together. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, forgive one another, do not judge one another. We've talked about a lot of one another's. And this is the lost art of friendship, looking back in time to the nature of relationships, within the early church and asking, is there anything, is there anything that we as a church who stand in the line of the church, we as a church should be learning? from the early stages of how the nature of these people who called themselves Christians were formed, the bonds that they shared together, and that is the lost art of friendship. So we are on, um, I think, part seven of nine this morning, and I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. It'll be a little bit of a different feel for you, and I I promise you I'll do my best not to make your eyes glaze over on some points, (laughs) because we're going to talk a little bit about some bigger ideas, but we're going to drive it down into why this matters in just a second. And here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to talk this morning about the idea in the church that the church should speak the truth to one another. Okay, We're going to talk about this idea and unfold it a little bit together. And the basis of this is this idea that Jesus calls himself the truth. In other other words, Christianity is based on the truth. Jesus made the the statement in John 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus immediately calls himself the truth, and Christianity would claim that it is a, a faith that is based on, if nothing else, good grief on the truth. Because Jesus said I am the truth, among other things, but I am the truth. And Paul, when he was writing to the early church in the little letter to Ephesians, which we'll look at in a couple minutes, but he said this, speak truthfully to your neighbor. He also said, speak truth to one another, that speak the truth in love, that this idea of the church speaking truth to one another was a part of the fabric of the development of the early church, which is great. And everyone, I think, could agree that those words are on paper somewhere, maybe bound together in something you call the Bible, but it's great. And we might even be able to look at that and say, that makes sense and I can understand that 30,000 foot. The challenge becomes when we move from the world of the first century to the world of the 21st century, what in the world does it mean to speak truth to your neighbor? What does it mean actually to know what truth even is? And how is it that a generation that is coming up who sees the world very differently than the generation that is ending their lives now how is it that the world, the generational shift in view of what truth is even impacts how the church sees and embraces truth? How is it that parents can speak to their children about what truth is when children see the world very differently than their parents or certainly than their grandparents? What does it actually mean anymore to speak the truth to one another? In 2015, the Barna Research Group did a, a survey of People, people in North America, not just Christians. And here's what they found relative to the idea of truth or moral truth being absolute or relative. Is moral truth absolute or relative? 35% would say it's absolute, 44% would say it's relative, and 21% are like, haven't thought about it. Sorry, just thinking about who's playing today and what's for lunch. Haven't thought about it. That our world indeed is moving to what is now being dubbed, if you haven't heard this term before, to a post-truth world. Not just post-Christian, not just post-modern, you've probably heard of those, but also now to a post-truth world. And part of the reason that that language is being thrown out there is actually, in part, and you've experienced some of this, is the phenomenon now that we feel, even of what we call now fake news. Now, you may have a visceral reaction to that phrase, but bear with me for a minute. At the very least... What we have realized in our society now is that the news that we take in, we realize we have to corroborate that with someone else and something else. Like, I'm not sure I can trust this person or this source or this thing. Someone posts that on social media. Uh, I'm going to have to corroborate that with something else in order for me to believe that what I'm reading and seeing is actually true. I'm not going to just take it in. It has created a very skeptical culture in which we live and our youngest generation is growing up and this is the air that they are breathing and the question is what is truth in a post-modern world and in a post-truth and some would argue a post-christian society how is it that the church in the 21st century can actually speak the truth to one another it may interest you to know that in the same research study by barna when they asked the question to the to the the elder generation, okay, the, the generation um the oldest generation among us living now. When they ask this question, how many of you would agree that let's take lying is morally wrong? In the, the elder generation, 65%, about two-thirds of people would tick that box and say lying is morally wrong. Strongly agree. That's great. You ask the same question to people who are in what they would self-identify as a millennial category one-third would agree with that statement. Lying is morally wrong, one-third. Well, it's relative. I mean, I don't know if it's really all that wrong. It kind of depends on what you're lying about, right? I mean, if my wife asks me if I'm planning a surprise birthday party for her, and I am, what is the greater win in what I should do, right? Like, what if I a you know, little white lie? Oh, well, I don't know. And it is a very intriguing world that we live in when the oldest generation has views around what truth is that are solid and set in place, and the next generation, the next generation coming behind, have completely different views about how the world works. And in this fabric, you have to ask the question, if you're going to actually do what the early church did, of speak the truth to one another, one must actually get around, what is truth? What does it actually mean, church? For me and for you to look at one another and say, this is the truth that we must speak to one another because that is so different. To illustrate it a little bit further, I've got in front of me here an apple. I had one of these for lunch this week, uh, more than one, I believe. Well, it wasn't the only thing I had for lunch, but it was a part of it. But this apple uh, that I hope some of you can see if you're listening online later, I've got an apple that's a... I, I would, I would um, identify this apple as a mixture of a red and yellow apple situation, Right? In the postmodern world, the question becomes, what color is this apple? If you imagine trying to answer this question. Now you might look at it from this angle and you might say, well, it's it's red. Then I might turn it slightly and you're like, well, that's a red-yellow. Or if you kind of look at it this way, you might just say it's it's yellow. But then I could ask you further, well, what if we could all agree that it was a red apple? I might ask you, what shade of red is that? And how would you know? At some point, it becomes real that you struggle to identify even the truth about how we describe something that you see right in front of you. Are you sure that it's red? Well, is it really red? Is it red-red? Is it like rose-red, plum-red? What kind of red-red are we talking about? And what if, some would argue, what if all of us are actually kind of red-colorblind? What if there was some physiological phenomenon when all of us actually saw red, what it actually was was green? What if we're all wrong? Is that possible? which the postmodern world would say, yeah, that is possible. And so here's the question that I want to raise, and here's the issue between a modern world and a postmodern world. The postmodern world would say this. In the postmodern world, belief informs truth rather than truth informing belief. Let me explain. Belief informs truth. If we were all postmoderns in this world, we would sit around and we would say, the truth about the answer to your question, Tim, about the color of the apple, the truth is in what we believe together. So we believe the apple is red. Therefore, it is red. That becomes truth. Truth comes from what the community believes. Belief informs truth. That's the postmodern world. That is 180 degrees different from the modern world, in which many of you grew up in as well. In the modern world, you would say, The reason the apple is red is because the silly apple is red. I don't care if you think it's green, purple, polka dot or whatever, but the apple is red. And I don't care what we say about it. Truth exists outside of it. Truth informs your belief. I don't care if you think it's pink, just off red, like rose red. I don't care about any of that. The silly thing is red because truth informs belief. And when the modern world and the postmodern world come into play, the real question is, come on, seriously, how do you raise kids? who are struggling to figure out what truth is in their faith. How to engage a God who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What does that really look like, church? To speak truth to one another. How do I even get my hands around that? That is what I want to do with you this morning. And so to get into that, I want to take you, I want to push pause on our world for a minute. And if I could transport you back to the world of Paul when he was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. That's where I want to take you for a minute. So push pause on all the uncertainty about truth for a minute. Let's just kind of suspend our judgment on this world for a minute and go back in time together and look at the ancient church and see if there's anything we can learn about what truth is there. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the little letter to Ephesians. There's a the Bible in the pew near you, that's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we'd love to have you take that with you. But in, in the Bible, in the Bible in the pew, kind of go to the right two-thirds, you'll find the little book of Ephesians. It comes right after Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians. In um, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we want to jump in this morning. And Paul, again, early follower of Jesus, he's writing to um, people who are um, trying to figure out <laughs> what truth is and how this works and how they together as a church grow in their identities, okay? And he says this in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So he begins by saying there's all kinds of giftings for different people. And then look at the next several words. I want to kind of prep you. Look at, I'm going to read through verse 13 now, the next two verses. And as I read them, I want you to look as you're reading at all the words that suggest that this group of people are growing for something. They're building up, they're preparing for something that they currently do not have. Look at verse 12. So all these gifts are here to prepare God's work, excuse me, God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ you get a picture there of the church You get a picture of a church that's not yet where it wants to be. A church that is young, but is trying to figure out where it wants to go. It wants to prepare for, build for, mature to, attain to. There's this reaching to, and how will they get where they want to get to? And Paul says, we we all have a vested interest with one another. You are this, you are that, you are that, and we all have this vested interest to become more than we are right now. And so this is kind of the opening piece. So how do we do that? It goes on, verse 14. Then, that then means like when we attain to this fullness, then... We will no longer be infants because the church is young. The church is trying to figure it out. We'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Now, pause there for a minute. Why were they infants? Why did he describe them as infants? Look at the text with me. You're no longer going to be infants, and then he describes it. Here are the descriptions of an infant. like You're tossed back and forth by the waves. You're blown here and there by everything that you see on social media. That's, what, that's what, my translation, okay? By every wind of teaching, by every idea that comes, by the cunning and craftiness of men. You are confused, church. You don't know what is true. Some new speaker comes up, some new ideas, some new teaching, some new whatever comes in, and church, you are confused, early church in Ephesus, you're confused about what's going on. This is a new movement called Christianity, a new movement really just called the way at this point. And so verse 15, he plops this word instead, and that instead word pivots the conversation and turns us from, instead of just becoming an infant and being an infant forever, instead, and then he introduces speaking the truth, In love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. So instead, church, of being blown around in every which way, I'm going to deposit an idea here called the truth. And this is the first part of truth. What I see Paul doing here is saying that at stake here, as he identifies truth, truth in this context in verse 15 is the true ideas about who Jesus is. It's teachings, because what's false is he's saying the teachings, the cunning, the craftiness, the teachings of man, okay, these are philosophical ideas. Now, the things that you are thinking about, ideas, are the things that are keeping you an infant. You are not able to process the ideas. Instead of doing that, instead of being stuck with that, let me insert into that space the truth about who Jesus is. And so in other words, he's putting there saying there are things that are true philosophically, idea-wise, about Jesus. There are intellectual ideas about Jesus that will guide you in your life, and I want to designate and clarify truth in that space. The space that will keep you an infant is the space in your mind where you'll be blown by every wind of teaching. And so in that, I want to put into that, there actually exists truth in that space. That truth is ideas, truth that can inform what you believe. So this is his opening piece on truth. This is how I see that, okay? Now, keep going with me. And he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. (laughs) Interesting statement, Paul. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, I don't know if you have church background or not, and it's totally fine if you don't. But if you don't, um, here's what I want to tell you: that the the idea of the Gentiles, for for most people, it kind of feels like, ooh, those are those are immoral people, right? I mean, those are people who do all the immoral things, whatever that might mean to you. Like that must mean the bad people. Like no longer live as the Gentiles do. People who are outside of the covenant promises of God. The Gentiles. Well, here's the ironic thing. Paul is writing this, right? Paul is writing this, and if you don't know this about Paul, I'm going to tell you. He was the greatest missionary to the Gentiles that has ever walked the planet. Paul put his life at risk over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts so that Gentiles, not Jews, so that Gentiles would have an opportunity to hear Jesus. He was stoned for his interest in the Gentiles, He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned for his interest in the Gentiles. And so I want to be careful, and I want to invite you to be careful, when we read this, that we don't read, don't act like an immoral so-and-so out there because we know God doesn't like them. That's not what Paul is saying. We have to clarify very clearly what does he mean by Gentile here. He's saying don't live any longer as the Gentiles do, and he clarifies it immediately in the futility of their thinking. Again, living in that idea space over here, what he's identifying is you can be Gentile in thought. And in this way, he's referring to your religious or your deistic theological worldview, who you think God is. The Gentile thinking is the thinking that says, no, Jesus isn't God, Um, Yahweh, whatever, that doesn't matter. The the Roman emperor is God. The gods of the Roman world are God. And in that Gentile thinking, that is a very cause-effect relationship. When it doesn't rain enough, I might sacrifice a child to make something happen. If I'm not able to have children, I might sacrifice to the, the goddess of fertility. And we're going to do cause-effect. And the gods, by the way, the, the Roman gods, have created the world so that people who were made by the world can serve the gods. So the gods can sit back and relax. But the, the Roman gods have created that. And so therefore, if we are serving gods who have Put us under their thumb, then it doesn't matter if I do the same to you when you work for me, or if you're in my community, if I have more money than you, I can kind of push you down because that's how I see the world. And Paul's saying that is a Gentile way of thinking. He's not against people who are outside of faith. He gave his life that people outside of faith could come. He's identifying a particular theological worldview, saying in their thinking, you can be Gentile. In your thinking, you can think about world and see it as these gods that cause effect and think outside of a, I'm going to call it a biblical or a theological worldview relative to the Bible. So here's what he's saying, don't do that, don't live that way, he goes on in verse 18, they, the people who think that way, are darkened in their understanding, again that's a mind intellectual word, and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And then what happens is, as a result of the mind and the understanding kind of going away, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. When the mind goes, the behavior follows. When you don't believe the right things, your behavior follows right into that, and it only makes sense. You're being consistent with your worldview. And he wants to stop it from the beginning, saying truth exists in that space. Let me insert that in here. And then he goes on, verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the. here's our word again, with the truth that is in Jesus. The truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And now we begin to see, as Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, what verse 22 says. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And then, verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on a new self, verse 24. That there is an incredible link between what you believe and how you behave. And now... Paul, I believe, is taking the idea of truth simply as a philosophical, intellectual idea and turning it into truth as being described by my behavior. You see what's happening there. He's describing behavior. I'm taking off the old self and I'm putting on the new. And immediately, I see two ideas in Paul's mind. That truth exists as ideas that shape the way you see the world, but that immediately turns into ideas that shape your behavior. You put off your old self and put on the new. You don't be involved in immoral in things. It would kind of be like me saying I'm an Eagles fan and then cheering for the Cowboys. It just, that can't happen. It can't happen for the Cowboys anyway, whether you're an Eagles fan or not, right? Sorry, John, I think you're in the room somewhere. But listen, the, the, the truth is it's inconsistent. It's, it's inconsistent. What I think and what I say in my ideas and my intellectual capacity must Follow through with my behavior in life. Otherwise, it is not true. You'd say, no, it's not true. Tim doesn't actually believe in the eagles if he's cheering for the cowboys. Same for Paul. If this is what you believe, then this is what you become. This is what he's saying. That both what you think and what you do need to come together. Therefore, verse 25, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. There's our sentence again. You must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. And this begins a list. I'm going to read through this list so you see what's going on. Thus begins now the first time that Paul begins to delineate, this is what the behaviors are that need to change in your community in light of the truth of Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus is true, because ideas about him are true, there are things, church, in your community that I see that are not in line with that. Some of you say you follow the eagles and you cheer for the cowboys. It's not working. And the truth exists in Jesus and it needs to come into your behavior. Here's what these are. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing, because apparently people have been stealing, steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. In other words, that behavior of ripping people off, taking what you need when you need it, rather than working, is not consistent with the truth that is in Jesus. Therefore, you are not living truthfully. You are not acting truthfully. Verse 29, "...do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs." that it may benefit those who listen. Listen, church in Ephesus, your conversation is not wholesome. I hear things about what you're doing. This is not what Jesus would have taught. You are therefore not truthful. You're not consistent. You're not living a life of integrity. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all, church, don't be bitter. Get rid of all rage and anger, brawling and slander. I'm just trying to imagine a church brawling after a church on a Sunday morning. Okay? But this is a part of that, like this opening chapter of the church, there's these things happening along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. All of these things are behavior, behavioral and relational descriptors of what happens when people align their lives with the truth of Jesus. Now, I will say this. For Paul, truth involves aligning our behavior with what we know about God through Christ. For Paul, truth involves aligning the behavior with the ideas of what we know about God through Christ. It's just a matter of being consistent. Do the ideas about Jesus line up with my behavior? And as I opened this conversation this morning, I began talking about the idea of the postmodern versus modern world, okay? And how belief informs truth in the postmodern world. That what I believe about the color of the apple, for example, is shaped by this community answer, and therefore the belief about it becomes the truth of the community, And I would suggest to you, I'd argue for you, that what Paul is suggesting to the early church in Ephesus is different to a degree. This is not the whole story, but that truth actually does inform belief. That the truth about Jesus that exists as outside of my experience with, but that truth that Jesus walked the planet and taught, that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, regardless of my belief about that and regardless of my experience with it, I would like to argue that Paul would say, to the church. This is the genesis of truth, is knowing who in the world Jesus is. This is where it begins. And in light of knowing Jesus and having conversations about the gospel and what that means in your life and in my life, that flows into behavior. But it doesn't matter whether I believe this or don't believe this. I would argue that it's actually true regardless of my belief whether or not. With that being said, let me tell you two things that are at stake, and the second one I think will, will, uh, will really resonate with some, and I hope the first one does as well. What's at stake in this conversation, first of all, is that all of us center our lives around truth of some kind, and if we don't center it around, let's say, my suggestion, it's to center your truth in your life around Jesus, if we choose not to do that, the question is where else do we center that, and we will center it somewhere else. By and large, that center becomes us. In the Barna research across the nation in 2018, they did a study in the millennial generation and Gen Z are the highest number of people in the about 25% category, 20, 25%, who would consider themselves as the moral arbiter of life. In other words, what I think, I am the final authority. Like I get to decide if this is true or not. It's the highest percentages among any generation that we have right now is in the youngest generation. It just makes sense. The danger is becoming a truth unto yourself. And that's what I don't want for any of you. And the reason I don't want that for you is not because I don't like you or not because I don't think you can make good decisions. The reason I don't want that for you is because I don't think any of us are that good. I don't think any of us have lived our lives even to this point without looking back with significant regret on mistakes that we have made. And if you have ever made a mistake, if you have ever had a regret, if you ever wished you wouldn't have dated that person in high school or junior high, if you ever wished you wouldn't have bought that car when you did, if you ever wished you wouldn't have been fired from that job because of the way you reacted to your boss, if you have any regret at all, there was a time when that regret you thought was a really good idea, right? Or else you wouldn't have done it in the first place. You thought it was a great idea to date that person and to say that to your boss and to buy that car. It was a great idea. It's the right thing to do in the moment. And now later on, a few years down the road, you're like, shoot, that was dumb. And the reason I don't want you to be the center of truth for your own life is because none of us are that good. We need something more than us. We just can't see all the things that need to be seen yet. And so I don't want for you to become a truth unto yourself. I want you to locate truth somewhere else in this world. And I would argue that finding and placing that truth in Jesus is the best place to start. Who in the world is he? What does it mean if he came here to die for you and for me? The second thing that I want to say, the reason why this matters, is there is a tendency and a, a struggle. We need to clarify this quickly, that we don't make secondary things primary in this conversation. Let me talk about regrets for a minute, regrets from the church. There was a time in the church, even in this church's history, which we can look back from our 250-year history book, by the way, which exists, I think, back somewhere. It exists somewhere. It's a green, hardbound thing. Very interesting reading. There was a period of time that exists in our church's history where a whole generation of people grew up thinking that having a TV in your house was bad. Not only bad, but like I would say untrue, like unfaithful. You are not being the most faithful follower of Christ if you had a TV in your house. Now, let me ask you, how many would love to have that be the way that our church works now? How many would love to have a knock on the door from the bishop or from me and be like, hey, excuse me, let me check the closet. And some of you hide that in here when the pastor comes around, but let me check your closet, kind of run that out. Or how about tattoos, right? I mean, good grief. There's a whole generation of people who think that tattoos are ungodly, are wrong. Why? Is that, is, that, is that about Jesus? I mean, the church has taken, I don't want to I mean, just pick on tattoos, but the church, my point is the church has taken secondary issues and elevated them to the issue of truth. And I would say, no, no, no. The postmodern world teaches us we need to have a conversation around what in the world does truth actually look like as we center it on who Jesus is. Do you think that Jesus cares about your TVs and about your tattoos? And let's talk about that. And so we have learned from a postmodern generation, and if we haven't, we should, because there's good things to learn about how we can figure out what our behavior looks like in line with the truth, not truth about my preferences, truth about my interpretation, but truth about Jesus in particular. Okay? So that's why I say this, that we need relationships to help us align truth with our behavior. We need relationships and this is the gift that the postmodern world has brought to us. Modernity, by the way, brought us the Titanic, great ship, great answer, scientific answer to, to big problems. The problem is, of course, the Titanic, you know, sunk. And and with it, so did modernity. And with it, so did the view that science can answer everything. And with it, so did dogmatism. This is the way it is. This is the way that it should be. No doubt about it. We built the biggest and the best, and there it sits at the bottom of the ocean because modernity and science broke and postmodernity came in and said, Whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm gonna tell you, we need relationships to help us figure out how do we align truth with our behavior. Which leads me to this question for you and for me. What relationships? of mutual respect do I have where I can discuss what's true and how to align my life to it? That's a question I want you to consider. As you think about your role in the church now, whoever you are, wherever part you're in in this this world right now, and whether you're visiting the first time you've been here forever, what relationships of mutual respect do you have now where you would say, you know what? i got people who will help me continue to turn my conversations around Jesus and help me figure out, does my behavior line up with it as a CEO of my company, as a leader in my business, with the future career that I hope to have, with my children, with my spouse, that my behavior lines up not with the secondary things that the church might find important at some period of time in history, not with the secondary do's and don'ts, not with that, but someone who could help me align my behavior with the truth of the gospel and the implications of that for how I live. Because the truth of Jesus informs how I live, and the relationships help me keep it in track with that. And this, I think, is Paul's message to the early church. Church, speak truthfully to one another. Know that ideas exist outside of my experience with them. Truth does inform your belief. It's not the other way around. And yet... The conversation in community shapes that truth and helps you and helps me become sharper and better and more on point as a church. So church, Paul writes to Ephesus: church, speak truthfully to one another. Align around Jesus and encourage and invite our behavior to line up with him more than anything else. Next week, we're going to talk about one more, one another. How to encourage one another. I look forward to that conversation with you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to come around these ideas and try to get some handles on them. To know how we can, as a growing church, come together and figure out even what does truth even mean. How can we help our children? How can we help ourselves continue to be aligned to the right things so we are not distracted by the secondary things? We drive toward a community of people who have conversations about the implications of the gospel for our marriages, for our singleness, for our businesses, for our futures, for our parenting. That our conversations and behavior align around the truth of Jesus and we wrestle with all the ambiguity and wrestle with all the tension that can fill the unknowns of what it actually looks like to live in the truth of the gospel in every phase. Help us to avoid dogmatism, to avoid simple answers to complex problems, but to drive together as a church to Jesus and how to align our lives with him, and how he's made us. So we thank you, Father, for your love for us, for your care, for giving us the good gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.